0: Hello, 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 and welcome to a new episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, joined by co-host Nick Leamy. Hey, everybody, how you doing tonight? And Jacob Jones-Goldstein. What did you do to me? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
1: hey,
0: if we're going to feel bad for anybody, look, you got to feel bad for me. Because it's all downhill for me from here. <laughs> because <laughs> We've topped out. As I said it before on previous episodes, I have three favorite horror movies. It's not actually hard and fast, and it fluctuates. You know, it it changes. But generally speaking, if I'm asked what my favorite horror movies are, my first responses are The Innocents, which we've done, John Carpenter's The Thing, which we've done, and the third one was Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure.
1: Excellent choices.
0: So we've we've done all three of your Bruner's Hammer. It is yeah. I I have no silver hammer. Yeah, like you called Midnight Mass, Flanagan's Silver Hammer. Yep. <sighs> What is that? Forgotten Realms, right? The, uh, yeah, the, the Streams of Silver, the Ari Salvatore yeah. book. <laughs> and yeah, no, it's we'd mentioned on previous episodes that this was a favorite and that we would do it whenever the Criterion Collection Blu-ray was finally coming out because we knew it was coming. And now it's going to be coming out. So this episode will be coming out after the Blu-ray. Pretty close to it, but it'll be after. So I'll just mention up front, if you have not seen this film, it was streaming on the Criterion channel. But now that the Blu-ray's coming, it's not. We're about to gush over this movie a lot, or I especially am about to gush over this movie a lot. So if you haven't seen it, but you've always been curious about it, just go check out that Criterion Blu-ray because it's going to be special. And this is going to be interesting because thus far on our pod, our Japanese movie history has been Paranormal Activity, Tokyo Night, (laughs) Dragon Blue, and then we finally did a good one with
2: Magnetic Rose. Yep. I, I would argue that Tokyo Night wasn't bad. No, it se. wasn't bad. No, no. I would argue Dragon Blue wasn't bad. You'd
0: lose that argument. I would. <laughs> but it's a great movie. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's terrible. Hey, it had Saga in it, and Saga is living the dream. That's true. Yeah, no, look, true. it had merit. I'll
2: give you that. It was the best of the bullshit you picked for that episode.
0: <laughs> oh, my God, it was, too. Yeah, yeah. by a lot. <laughs> oh, no, it was. <laughs> by several touchdowns. Folks who haven't heard it, if you want to go back through our back catalog, the episode titled Wretched Rumble, where I subjected Nick and Jake to four movies starring professional wrestlers. And, yeah, Dragon Blue is a random v-cinema creature feature from the late 90s, starring Kaiji Muto, also known as the Great Muda. Uh, who's about to retire. He's getting ready, I think, in February. He's going to do his big retirement show at the Tokyo Dome. So, yeah, it's rather timely. Wow. And then we interviewed Evil Ted Smith, who wrestled or fought Muda in a little video that was made as part of his run. I believe it was for New Japan. But, yeah, so go check out our Wretched Rumble episode and then the interview with Evil Ted Smith for all that. A lot of fun anecdotes. But, yeah, this is our first Kiyoshi Kurosawa movie. One of my absolute favorite filmmakers. So very good. I, it's
2: it's incredible i mean I, I i'm glad
0: you liked it
2: i i did not know what i was in for
1: so it's like i loved it the first time i watched it i loved it this time i watched it and i, I like you've said before it's like the more you watch it the more you find and that's very true
0: yeah i couldn't it, it sounds like hyperbole but yeah so warnings this is going to be another like innocence episode where i it's just make one <laughs> and you can't hear it but you might be able to hear the sound of my hands wiggling <laughs> on either side of the microphone and just making you know whooshing noises does he have a fan going or some
2: shit this, this was a very jazz hands episode for eric
0: this was all jazz hands yeah <laughs> cuz we have a fabulous guest for this one too a oh, we returning really guest on this one no. So, want to send it over to the review Let's go! Absolutely. I am so delighted to welcome our next guest back to the podcast. You would have heard him before in our review of Butterfly Kisses, but he's the creator of Cartoon Cat, Siren Head, and other sundry images that have creeped you out on the internet. He's the author of Odd Noises and Empty Rooms. His artwork has appeared on the cover of Razor Blades, a variant cover for I Breathe the Body, Department of Truth. He illustrated Jed Shepard's Flicker, and he recently did the cover for Laurel Hightower's novella Below and. Delighted to welcome back to the podcast, Trevor Henderson. Yay! Yay. <laughs>
1: welcome
3: back. Wow, that was an incredible intro. Thank you. Like all the variant covers and stuff. I
0: couldn't find, I've got below here somewhere and I've got your variant I breed the body, but I couldn't dig them out. So, Oh no, yeah. But I do have them.
3: That, that's great thank you I loved I love doing the cover for below because it pops up all the time because that novella is amazing it's, it looks
0: great yeah
3: I have it here and I've only read a little bit of, of it because I jump from book to book really quickly but um I'm really proud to have that cover on there for that book in particular excellent oh yeah the cover's fabulous how are you doing I'm doing good you know just still chipping away various things working on projects some I can talk about some I can't and just uh you know doing freelance projects from home and also watching a lot of horror movies because it's October.
0: And I'm just oh, going over yeah. overdrive, yeah. Yeah, we're right at the start of, as of recording this, we're right at the start of Spooky Season, so. Yeah. But I'm particularly excited to get you back on for the movie we're talking about tonight. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting about it, because yeah. ever, ever since we talked Butterfly Kisses, I think I mentioned it in an email way back when we first did that, that it was like, if we ever get around to Cure, <laughs> yeah. I would love to have you on, because for various reasons, aside from knowing your opinions on the film in general, You and Minofsky on Twitter have basically been the standard bearers (laughs) for the Get This a Criterion Blu-ray campaign for
1: years. Absolutely. And it
0: finally happened. And it finally happened, which is why we're doing this episode. I've always said as soon as it comes out on Blu-ray from Criterion, we'll do it. So for folks who don't know, before the Criterion channel, I think it was Filmstruck before that, but even before that, it was an add-on to Hulu. Yeah. They had like a little paid add-on. And so going all the way back to, like, I don't know, 2016 or so, but whenever that Hulu add-on was around, Cure was there. And it wasn't like one of those things where Criterion would bring it in and then cycle it out. It was there and it has stayed there up until recently. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah. So it was like, all right, so they've clearly licensed it. So they're going to do a release of it at some point. Yeah. And then time kept going and going and going. And it was like, I know it's coming at some point. And then years <laughs> went by. And then finally last year, they did a theatrical release of a 4K remaster. So it was like yeah. definitely coming. Took another whole year, but now it's out October of this year. And it was on the Criterion Channel up until a few days ago the day Jake went to watch it. <laughs> oh no.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: I got bladed on this one. Like when I was
2: watching Bladed <laughs> it cut out midstream cuz I was watching it around midnight. And that was when they took it off HBO Max. They took Blade away from you? And I had to go buy it to watch the rest of the movie that night. Oh, my God. And then so when I sat down to watch this, and Eric said, yeah, it's on the Criterion channel. So I sat down like, this,
1: no, it ain't. <laughs> and Eric's like, what do you mean, no, it ain't? <laughs> Literally, the universe just thinks you don't deserve good things. I had yeah. watched it the night before.
0: so And it makes sense for them to pull it because... The Blu-ray's coming, so I'm sure it'll be off for a few months. Yeah, and then after the Blu-ray's been out for a while, they'll put it back. And they'll usually, with the Criterion channel, they'll take all the Blu-ray extras and put them up as well. So it'll be back. But yeah, if you're listening to this and you don't have the Blu-ray, go get it. Just <laughs> so. buy it.
3: That's like a, a blind buy. You'll never ever regret. It's it's one of the best movies ever made. Agreed.
2: And I was able to watch it after that in a totally legal and. <laughs> by the board fashion <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> there's always that that completely legal way of watching movies Absolutely,
0: utterly completely legal <laughs> once again I don't have the uh, I, we're recording this before that Blu-ray is out but I do have behind me my stack of various Kiyoshi Kurosawa stuff which is going to topple if I grab it but <laughs> I do have the original DVD release of Cure in there and I've also got the Eureka Blu-ray that came out a few years ago nostalgic I got that when we started the podcast, Yeah. that and Pulse, the Blu-rays, because I was like, we're oh, going to do these eventually, so I'm going to buy the Blu-rays now Yeah. before they go out of print. Uh, related to that, Trevor, another reason I'm so excited to have you on the pod in terms of memorabilia is you're the reason I have this. Oh, wow, yeah. Which is the Creep Illusion Cure tie-in light, uh, Zippo lighter that they made. So Creep Illusion made a, I think there were two things. There was this and a t-shirt, and I got the shirt, too.
3: Yeah, I have the shirt. I didn't, I never got the the lighter. Now I regret it. It looks yep. really cool. Oh, yeah, this
0: is the lighter, <laughs> which comes packed in bloody gauze. That is a grim tie-in. Yep. <laughs> That's delightful. Yeah. But, yeah, you tweet. I wouldn't have seen it if you hadn't tweeted about it, so thank you. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. He's my favorite
3: bootleg horror shirt guy, and I felt like he was literally just following things I would post about and then making shirts for it, uh, specifically for me, and then I was just buying a chain of stuff for a while. He's done a Lake Mungo shirt. He's done a... oh. Yeah, really? Yay. I didn't know he'd done that. He did an, Amer- an amazing uh, Blair Witch Project shirt just recently. He did uh The Cure shirt. About
2: to sell three Lake Mungo shirts.
3: <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> he's had a lot of really, really cool ones. Uh, a whole found footage kick for a while. I really want him to do a Savage Land shirt. Because Savage Land oh, is... Yes. Oh, yes. That's the one. Oh, absolutely. In. Yeah. But he's great. And the lighter is an amazing tie-in. Like, that's Perfect. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's, it, very rarely do I get like movie, random movie tie-in merch, but I wasn't passing that up for this. Yeah, movie. yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I know that this movie is a big movie for you because I know you've mentioned in the past it's a favorite. Um, until recently, it was at the top of your uh, top four in Letterbox. I think you just shuffled it up as of recently, but I've started shuffling that like every like couple weeks or so because
3: like, <laughs> there's so many
0: good movies and I just
3: it's just the oh out yeah,
0: at this point. It's October. So
3: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely one of my favorite movies. I saw Pulse before it, and for a while that was, you know, in contention, like for my favorite Kiyoshi Kurosawa film. Um, I really need to see more. I've only seen, I think, uh, a movie called Doppelganger, which I didn't care for, and then Pulse and Cure. And Pulse and Cure are incredible, incredible films. Yes. But yeah, I just, I mentioned I just watched Cure Again, Ended is absolutely the better film in my opinion between the two. But they're both so good, it's ridiculous.
0: No, that was the, the first thing I wanted to ask was how you first
3: discovered it. Oh, yeah. It might have been through Minofsky, actually, like on Twitter. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think it was just either that or just exploring around after having seen Pulse and being really frightened by that. Just to see what else there was. And, of course, that's the that's the other one you have to see as soon as you see Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Pulse. The other avenue it might have been is that I, if you haven't seen it yet, Koji Shirashi's film Occult mm-hmm. has Kiyoshi Kurosawa show up as like a Elder God expert at one point, which is really oh, funny. Nice. We've been talking about watching a cult for a while now. Cult is amazing. It has the scariest horror movie soundtrack you'll ever find. It's so alarming. I, I most days I like it a little better than Noroi actually. Uh, it's really, really oh, good. Oh wow! Yeah, yes. Yeah. That's,
2: that's tough because Noroi is that's high praise. Pretty high on all of our at least certainly my list.
3: Without spoiling anything, the thing with the cult is that most people really like it, like ninety five percent of the way through, and then the ending makes them hate it because it takes some bold <laughs> it takes some bold, <laughs> bold swings
1: mm-hmm. Why have you done this to me?
3: Yeah, but I love it more because of the ending and I think it's a pretty small fan club of people who, who like it more despite the choices he makes at the very, very end there and you'll know what I mean when you watch it
2: <laughs> That that may be my next uh, October viewing I, uh, Oh man, yeah,
3: I can't recommend it enough
2: I started with Cure and then I watched one uh, last night called What Josiah Saw.
3: I've heard that's good
2: it's been a grim-ass October so far, man. Let me tell
3: you. I heard it's pretty bleak. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's... Well, we'll save that one for another podcast, but yeah, it, it, there's a lot of merit to it.
3: Yeah, I watched um uh, the one I watched today just because I saw people talking about it. And I was like, this is great. I got to see this again. Is, um Terrified. It's an Argentinian oh, haunted suburb. Terrified
2: is the, it's the most aptly named horror movie of all time. That movie scared <laughs> the shit out of me. It's really good. I talked about in this podcast about how you get kind of a nerd to scares. Like yeah. You know, you like the horror movies, but they don't scare you. Like, I, I can watch them with the lights out and go to bed just fine. Not so with Terrified. Yeah. I watch that, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just going to be in the dryer, as Nick would say.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only safe spot in the house. Yeah. It's got, like, three to five, like, brilliantly done scares in that one. Yeah. And, and I would say Cure
2: is actually pretty damn scary, yeah. too. I. I have to say, going into this, I didn't know a single thing about the movie. I knew hmm. the guy had also directed Pulse, and I kind of half know what Pulse is about. Yeah. And I, in my head, I was conflating the two. So I didn't know at all that I was walking into, like, existential seven hell
3: yeah. with Cure. Ah.
2: <laughs> and so I'm, like, watching it, and it's like, I don't even remember what I said, but after it, it just... You said, well, that was bleak. I think it was Jesus Christ.
1: Also. Yeah, <laughs> That was an experience.
3: Yeah. I was, I was not ready for this movie at all. The police procedural just, like, stripped of all, like, meaning and purpose. And just the void in substitution. Yep. It's just, like, nothing there underneath everything. I love it. It's so bleak. It's great.
0: So, Jake, it's your first time seeing it. Yes. Nick, how did you first see it? Did I randomly throw the DVD at you at some point? <laughs> I I think
1: you suggested it to me honestly. Like, okay. if, I remember it was years so ago though, and I remember loving it. You know, it it's just first time watching like wow, this is this is a fun stuff. It hits lots of my buttons, you know, obviously it's the mystery mm. and there's the philosophy and like you know and there's lots of questions and it's oh, and I love the lead <laughs> actor. He's fantastic. Yeah. You
3: know. It's kind of a two-hander with the the villain mania and the detective um, they're both so incredible. Like, they just play yep. off each other so well. Absolutely. And yeah, it's so ambiguous in terms of, especially, like, without jumping ahead too much, it, the third act is so, like, up for interpretation as to what's actually happening at pretty much any given time in the last, like, 30 minutes or so. And it's such a, it's such a, because the first two thirds of the movie are, like you said, it's a
2: police procedural. You kind of, yeah, it tracks you, there's weirdness. And then it just sort of veers off into the netherworld and it's, and it just, like, and you're so engrossed and so invested in everything around you by that point that it just, like, I had to stopped I had to walk around for a little while. Like, normally yeah. I, I you know, I'll read a few comics or something. You know, I'm reading a Stephen King novel currently before I go to sleep. And I'm like, nah, man, it's like Archie comics or something before yeah. I go to bed tonight. Or I'm going to have a yeah. problem. <laughs> yeah Not like the scary Archie comics either.
3: Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like, at what point, if at all, is the detective... Forgive me, I can't forget the detective's name. Takabe. Takabe, sorry. At what point is he compromised, right? Or is he compromised at all in that, uh, throughout that film? Because like, like you said, it's it's a weird police procedural for a grand majority. And then at some point, you have to start questioning, like, has he succumbed? Like, there are a, a handful of scenes there where he easily could have been put under, as it
1: were. I, I feel that he almost went under. Oh, it, oh really? my, my interpretation of the film is when there's the water scene, like the fire did nothing to him and the water yeah. almost got him. Well, he keeps wiping the lighter out of the guy's hand and stopping him every yep. time. Yeah. Yep. But like the water was enough to kind of get under his skin and have him start seeing things happening with his wife, but at no point did it actually take over him, which is why Mamiya is so amazed by him. Just like, wow, yeah. how are you doing this? You know, and, I, I almost feel like he is truly turned just at the end when he finally figures out, you know what? He may not be the only one who can do this. <laughs>
0: yeah. I, I was wondering so much coming into this I was like, all right, Nick's going to have the most optimistic read, but which way is it going to go? So
3: I'm pretty close to your reading, Nick, but I think it's a little bit more dour than that. Oh, I think he a hundred percent is put under in the water scene. Yes. But he's so responsive and so, special like Mamiya says that he is basically the next one he's the next guy the next um uh, what do they call it
0: the the term they use for him later is Dendoshi which translates as I forget how they translate in the subtitles but I was watching an interview uh pretty recently with Yoshi Kurosawa and, and I guess it was part of a Koji Yaku show retrospective where they were showing a bunch of his films I think it was in 2018 and in the course of that they mentioned that the original title of the film was going to be Dendoshi, which translates as Evangelist.
3: Oh, and so wow. that's what they
0: refer to Mamiya as, but they changed it because it was so this movie was came out in uh was it ninety six? Ninety six or ninety seven, somewhere around there, yeah. It's ninety seven, because yeah, it's ninety seven was the big year for Koji Yaksha, which we'll get into some of the other stuff he did around this at some point. But mm. it was around the time of the the sarin gas attacks uh. in Japan, which were done by the Um, And I don't know the name for it, but Om Shinrikyu Cult, I believe, was the name of it. But yeah, a a religious-fueled terrorist attack. And so the studio made the decision to change the title to something less religious. And one of the studio heads pitched Cure, and just using the English word Cure, the movie's title was literally Cure. So they said, all right, we'll go with that. But it's also because, and they touch on this a bit in the film, but mesmerism and hypnosis, the roots of that in Japan... Do seem to have a more mystic association than they do, at least in America, but but in the West, because originally there there are versions of, and I didn't go too far into this, and but they do touch it on it on it a bit in the film, which is mikos and shamans and people of those like would use hypnosis esque techniques, right, in Japan. So there is already kind of a, a more supernatural slash religious. You know, bent to it more so than it would probably have in America. Oh, so yeah. Thus, adding more resonance to that evangelist title, which got stuck in my head. As we were recently talking to Luke piotrowski and Ben Collins. Oh, wow, nice. Yeah, they came on the chat about Magnetic Rose with us, and they also host the fabulous podcast Sync Ratios about Neon Genesis Evangelion. So when it, I heard the movie was called Evangelist, all I've got stuck in my head is calling the film Grunge Apocalypse Evangelion because it's basically <laughs> just the inversion of of that it's yeah from neon to grunge and that's because that the grunge element is something i definitely want to get into. oh yeah
3: i would the film is so textured that's definitely something that stuck out to me in a, uh to talk about but yeah i was just saying yeah exactly that he's the next representative of this he's he's fulfilling the role that mamia was going to and whether he's conscious of that or not because i don't i think at the very very end of the movie he does something to that waitress, but has zero memory yep. of it. And since we're seeing from his perspective, huh. we don't see it happen.
1: We just see her pick up the knife at the very, very end. See, I honestly think he did it on purpose to the waitress. Oh, I do too. I think he did it yeah, on purpose it. as well. I think he knows about it. Oh, really? He's okay. conscious of it. Yeah, I think he's conscious of it. And I think he uh, consciously took his wipe out too. Oh,
3: yeah. I mean, it's super up for interpretation. Like, it depends on how much of a cognizance you want to assign to Mamiya where they're saying he's an amnesiac, he doesn't know who he is, whether that's fully just a bullshit lie to get under people's skin, or if he's a walking kind of just, like, empty, you know, he says in the film, like, I'm, everything that was inside me is outside, but I'm empty inside now. Like, whether he has lost his identity and he's just, like, it just is going out to everybody else and he doesn't recognize it or not.
1: To me, I was taking very much a less magic approach to this mm. personally, and more of a to me, Mamiya is a ultimate narcissist. Okay. Like he just thinks they've established he's a genius, that much they've talked about, because like he's able to make this work. But I also feel that he now that he's learned how to do it, he never stops. Like yeah. he just loves living in that Mindset and that being of constantly just owning anyone he comes across. And so, the act to me, it's an act of the recursive kind of questions, yeah, the circular questions, the the repetitive, yeah. like, like the actual words he's using are part of the hypnotism. Oh, yeah, absolutely, they are. Yeah. And since he's always doing it, he's just kind of like, Hey, you're someone else I can own. You know, it's just that's where he lives. The, those circular questions
2: drove me nuts because I used to work in customer service and answer phone calls.
1: And <laughs> yeah. they
2: just kept reminding me of every single call I ever had. Uh, and it, was, it was a little triggering. Not going to lie. It was tough. But I, for me, this whole movie was like a, a reverse sixth sense. Because the first time I watched it, I thought I had a handle on everything. Oh, yeah. When he played the record, he got hypnotized. And that makes sense. And then I watched it again. I'm like, holy shit everything is up for interpretation. Yeah, Everything I thought I had a handle on was if you think about
3: it for 10 seconds, like, well, maybe not. But like the whole movie and Mm -hmm. it's... Yeah. It's also amazing that the entire movie structures as like the induction that the victims fall under in the context of the film. Like it has a similar effect where you're losing stability as it goes on and things are more and more ambiguous until like you're as ungrounded as the people put under are at that point, you know? It's it's great Mm -hmm. for that.
2: Yeah, like I I've, I've been living with this movie for, you know, week and a half, two weeks now ever I first watched it and it's it is hard to shake. Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> it is it is it gets under your skin. I mean, it, and it's yep. just you know, it yeah,
3: I it it really got to me. I think it's the sound design. The sound design is yes. N- unbelievable. Yes. It's incredible. Very little anything that could be construed as straight up
0: score for this film three pieces
3: yeah there' like this uh the final scene the opening scene i think one more somewhere in there the bus yeah so the it's, bus, yeah it's, right. it's
0: the opening theme which is this jaunty themed indirect, you know counterbalance to this you know horrific act that plays out then the yeah. ending scene but then there's also the bus which is kind of which is one of the first major what i just have listed as elements of the the increasingly ethereal elements of the film there's
3: a couple hints in there that i want to talk about it about it being supernatural it's also cool that that bus scene is in Pulse too, like exactly the same thing. Huh. It's like a director trademark or something. I don't know if it pops up in other films as. Uh...
0: Yeah, so you've seen Doppelganger, Pulse, and Cure, right? I've seen Pulse and
3: Cure. Like I'm familiar with those two because I've seen them uh, multiple times. I saw Doppelganger once at a film festival when I was like 20, so I don't I don't remember it basically at all.
0: Uh, I watched a few so. To circle back to how I discovered this film, I this goes all the way back to me in college. This is in the early 2000s. Mm. I went to, there was a local video store right on the college campus that I ignored for years and years and years. And then finally, when I moved and I was close to this place, I said, I'll go in there and see what they have. And discovered that they had this bounty of cult films that I had never seen in any other VHS store, but also had bootleg VHS tapes where they had dubbed Hong Kong DVDs Amazing. of stuff that hadn't had a US release yet and i remember this distinctly because when i walked in the first VHS tape i saw was Shaolin Soccer um. and this <laughs> nice. was a few years before that had its US release this was right as i guess it had played once or was making the rounds in Texas because it was back in the days when Annie cool news was talking it up right but they had Shaolin Soccer and The Ring next wow. to each other <laughs> okay Hell and yeah. then next to that was Cure. And oh, so man. I just went down the line of this shelf of all these films that if I had known to check Hong Kong DVD sites, I probably could have found them. But it, these were straight up. You put in the VHS tape, you hit play, and you see like the DVD menu is the first thing you see. Right. They just dubbed it straight off the DVD. And it was the best stuff. So that's how I saw Takashi Miike for the first time. Takashi Miike! Dead or Alive, Happiness of the Katakuris. Yeah. But so I saw cure then and absolutely blew me away so at the time i kind of gobbled up everything Kyoshi kurosawa that i could get my hands on at, mm. at that point so I've, I've seen seance uh guard from the underground i saw eyes of the spider uh serpent's path and everything up to tokyo sonata which if anyone hasn't seen it is fabulous and tokyo sonata is where i kind of dropped off so i dropped off right before loft which is the horror movie of his that people seem to be really divided on i'll throw this out there to anyone listening to where i stand on kyusha kurosawa i really liked loft so (laughs) take all my kurosawa opinions with a grain of salt i thought that movie was great but i can absolutely see why people hate it
1: yeah i I remember when you made me watch the happiness of the katakuris and oh my god oh Oh, yeah
0: holy crap because that was one i was like i'd seen it on vhs and then since we were working at a borders books and music we were working there so about like four to five years after I saw these VHS tapes is when they finally started getting official DVD releases. Right. So I would buy them and then toss them at people and say, please watch this. It's
1: a horror musical with a small little claymation bit in the middle. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> it's Incredible.
0: So the reason I bring all that up is there's a couple of Kiyoshi Kurosawa films I hadn't seen. And one I would recommend that I watched as part of the buildup for this is his movie Sweet Home. Oh, I love Sweet Home. I have seen that. You have seen. Okay. I forgot that he directed that actually. He directed it. And I hadn't seen it until the prep for this. I really, really want to do Sweet Home. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because it, it has so many of his visual hallmarks, but the tone of it is so different. The tone of it is so much closer to something like what I keep comparing it to is like Nobuhiko Obayashi's house. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not yes. as extreme as that. Not as it's crazy. it's in that realm.
3: Yeah, it's like his poltergeist. Or, uh... Uh,
0: in, in terms of the balance of farce and legitimate terror. Yeah. But it, the other reason I thought it was interesting watching Sweet Home all of a sudden now was the name of the mansion is Mamia. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Same as the evangelist in, in this movie. So I was like, holy shit. I wonder if that was deliberate.
3: That's an interesting choice. Um, yeah, that movie is it's a, just like a touch too slow for its own good. I feel like if it was a little bit faster paced, this is Sweet Home, by the way, it, yeah. it would already have a Blu-ray release or some, you know, Boutique, show factory, you know, whatever. But the stuff that works in it is incredible. There's an amazing meltdown where some guy explodes into a skeleton near the end, and all the ghosts are Dick Smith effects. There's a giant. It thing.
0: has something for everybody. Yeah, kind of, horrible, some like guy it. gets
3: cut in half and crawls around with his guts hanging out. It's great. So <laughs> I'm
2: gonna have Leonard Skinner in my head the rest of the night. Thanks, guys.
0: <laughs> if anyone's listening to this and you're looking for other more Halloween stuff, that that's one. I would pretty broadly recommend giving it just a try because it hits so many bases. Totally. But What I'll say is, too, is if you are a Juzo Itami fan, and Juzo Itami did uh, Tanpopo is probably his best-known film in the West, which, funnily enough, is where most people would probably have first seen Koji Yakusho in the West because he is the first person you see in Tanpopo is him as the white-suited Yakuza who comes out and talks to the viewer and breaks the fourth wall. But I guess Kurosawa worked with Juzo Itami for a bit because Juzo Itami and his wife, and I apologize, I'm blanking on her name at the moment, but she was the lead actress in all his movies. They're both in Sweet Home. Right. So if you're a Juzo Itami fan, it's fascinating watching Juzo Itami running around this goopy, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> horror movie. It's so much fun.
3: Oh, that's awesome. I still need to, uh, Tan Popo's on my shelf and I just have not. Oh. Maybe that'll be my November 1st. Once the, the horror movies are out of the way, I'll, I'll jump on that.
0: Yeah, let me know what you think. I, I, I love Tampopo
3: yeah, I want to talk about the texture in cure because, God, is it uh, rusty and... Oh. oh, yeah. Just sloshing around in ankle-deep, dirty water and just every room looks like it's weathered and, and lived in.
0: Just rot everywhere. Yeah, exactly. I, I love that. So, well, one thing uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa talks about, I mean, it really stands out when you look at how derelict a lot of these buildings are and like how, how weather-worn it is. And he yeah. mentioned specifically telling his production crew they obviously didn't have a lot of money for this film which was easy for kurosawa because he was coming off a career of he started in pink films like a lot of directors did yeah a couple tv movies and then a boatload of yakuza v cinema right which i'll mention real quick one of the things i really loved about this movie is the fact that the scene at the end where takabe shoots mamiya yeah the fact that they're using the v cinema style you know, like movie guns which is basically an oversized cap gun yeah which exudes way more smoke than you know I'm, i've never fired a gun but it exudes way more smoke than you see in a gun in any kind of western film mm-hmm. but it's perfect for this film because of th- the mist and smoke element is so intrinsic to a lot of this seeping ethereal nature as the movie progresses it's what you yeah. see outside the bus it's what you see when takabe is wiping cr- down the the misty window. It's when he's running into the forest. There's sporadic mist. So it kind of like either intentionally or inadvertently plays into this whole <laughs> mystique. So it's like there. Yeah, absolutely. This little crappy prop gun actually feeds into this broader thematic imagery.
3: Yeah, I'd be curious to know if that was intentional or just like a happy accident. Because it totally, you're right. It absolutely does play into it.
0: Nothing in this feels like an accident. No, no. it really doesn't. No. I was going to preface the conversation with yeah, a lot of the stuff is that I might throw out during the course of this conversation might. You know, it's a lot of it's like I feel like I might be reaching probably with some of what I'm about to talk about. But at the same time, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, I mean, if you see any of his films at all, see if you hear him talk. He is an exceptionally intelligent and very meticulous individual when it comes to to filmmaking in terms of craft. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's I think it's, you know, drilling down to that degree, I think is what I might be off the mark on a lot of stuff. But I think this movie absolutely warrants that degree of. Of digging and a lot of it, it plays in like what you just mentioned in terms of the grime and the grunge of it so this movie
2: this movie looks like seattle sounded in 1992
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> grunge central Is it grunge apocalypse evangelion yeah that's perfect yeah um to touch on real quick in, in order to get into some of the visual stuff i think i have to touch on this which is some of the broader thematic stuff so one of one of the reasons this movie operates so well uh for me, at least, is I sure I think you referred to it on Letterboxd as just a perfect movie. Oh, yeah, I just did that. Yeah, <laughs> I in as much as anything is a perfect movie. This is a perfect movie for me. Yeah. One tweet I will call out and someone I referenced earlier is Ben Collins. I Ben, I think summed it up best with a tweet of his from October of last year, which is it's so weird how Kiyoshi Kurosawa already made the best movie in 1997. And yet we all just keep trying mm-hmm and it's,
1: <laughs> it's,
0: it's true it's it's true it's the just the degree of oh sorry like i said i get gushy about this but at the core of the movie is in terms of this being a horror film the core concept, uh or one of the core ideas that the movie wrestles with with being what is fundamental human nature and what is inside versus outside and the idea of morals and sociology Mm -hmm. and society as we've constructed it is all essentially the fear that all of that is essentially a veneer yeah and that when it's stripped away and the degree to which it manifests itself visually in conjunction with all the grimy imagery of it but it's very specifically manifests the counterbalance to that is tile Mm -hmm. it is always white tiles it is pristine It is symmetrical. Yeah. It is uniform. And it's omnipresent. It's in Hanaoka's kitchen, who's the the first civilian yeah. we see Mamiya run into. It's the side uh, granted, this is probably something that's just that's just used in a lot of Japanese architecture. However, I do think it's very deliberate the usage here. It's in both Hanaoka's kitchen and Takabe's kitchen. It's the sidewalk outside the dry cleaners. Yeah. The doctor's office very specifically has it. The interrogation room specifically is white tile. And so it's always, and you have to also factor into that. This is one of the things this movie's playing into is individuality versus broader society and the needs of the many, which is something for Japanese society is something you see a lot. Yeah. You know, this is a society that, that tends to, at least in, in movies, you see a more gravitation towards the needs of the broader society over the needs of the individual. Yeah. That manifests itself a lot in this film, but it's, it's, it, the fact that the imagery for it is so particularly this pure white symmetrical uniform image that's omnipresent but beneath it it is a fragile veneer that underneath it is just detritus yeah and grunge and it's the movie even literalizes it at one point with mamiya is in his cell right before he breaks out and takes a stool to his radiator yeah. And his radiator, which is just this white porcelain vinyl. The white, pristine paint, the paint coming off of it. Yeah. I noticed that too. And then just it shatters it and, and chips it away. And contrasting that with, you know, I so said this movie has that incredibly dingy color palette, particularly with Mamiya's room, which we see, which eventually in a dream sequence kind of becomes fused with his cell where it's all dinginess, you know, ink black and grimy, but still very infused with this kind of porcelain and because it's all bathware, it's sinks, tubs, Mm -hmm. toilets. It's all these pristine white things that are then just shattered and to reveal this grunge underneath. And it manifests going to the scene with the phonograph that you get to, which is kind of the apotheosis of all this, where he just gets into this room and it's just shattered tiles and water and everything is in ruins.
3: Yeah. The remains of his psyche. I mean, alone the scene with the doctor in that pristine office like the oh my god and then you know they mark it with a big black inky x over top yep. uh as yep. soon as you know she awakes from her induction into the uh that mesmeric spell or whatnot so that totally tracks for me absolutely
2: it's funny this is one of the rare movies i i think it it almost benefited from me watching it in the totally legal not so high quality fashion that i watched it <laughs> yeah absolutely it, rather than something like, you know, pristine 4K Blu-ray, it, it added a vibe to it. Absolutely. You know, I'm I- not saying I wouldn't watch it, you know, where I can actually see everything and make everything out. But it, it it didn't detract from this this particular
3: film, just given the overall mood and style. Yeah, I have the Criterion Blu-ray on the way, but like one of my favorite double bills I've watched with friends, we used to do, uh, you know, especially during the pandemic when it was in its super height or, you know, online double features. And we did a really choppy like digital artifacted 480p version of Pulse and Cure, and especially Pulse, mind you. Because oh, of, yeah. Oh, my God. It, it was <laughs> terrifying because every digital artifact and pixelated face and, like, weird grayed-out shadow was another ghost in that movie. But, like, yep. that, those two movies together, that's just one of the best double features in that specific format I've ever had. It was uh, very heightened. That's, that's a good way to stay up for a week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I I also, I think that there is an argument to be made about a, a real supernatural element in this film. There's not a lot of indicators for it, but the one thing that stood out this time is that when Mamiya first shows up on the beach, he just apparates. There's three shots. It's the beach, yep. the whole horizon line, then the, the school teacher, and then cut back and he's just standing in the middle of that beach. like He could not possibly have come from any any direction. He just appears. Which isn't, you know, like, it's not unintentional. It's very, very intentional. Oh, yeah. So I love that idea.
0: <laughs> Wrangling with kind of the, the, those more surreal elements, what I keep having in my notes is those ethereal elements. And that's yeah. abs- that is that is the first big one, is him yeah. simply apparating and him simply manifesting. And then after that, they sort of start to, once there's the cell incident, the conversation between Mommy and Takabe, is that's when they start to really manifest in rapid succession. And that's where they really start to manifest in terms of the movie's editing, yeah. In terms of where it'll have, you know, rapid cuts. It's one of the things I love. Uh, sorry, there's so many different directions I can go with this. No, one. please go. go. Yeah, but is another way in which this is a film I love is that it is in just in terms of the way it constructs terror, and that it does so in, you know, I I like all kinds of horror. I like schlock. I like goop. I like you know mm-hmm. over the top stuff. I like. I'm not a huge jump scare person, but in moderation, I I like them. Oh, yeah. What I love is this movie's conception of jump scares are predicated on silence. Yeah. It is predicated on cutting not to a noise, but cutting away from a noise. Mm -hmm. And it really, in so much as there's noise, it's really just the omnipresent drone that this movie has. Like Trevor, like you mentioned earlier, there's essentially no score. There's just basically an omnipresent drone through. Yeah like 75% of the movie and the moments where that cuts away to these rapid cuts are essentially the jump scares, the yeah. shots of the rapid edits when Takabe leaves mommy his apartment and he has the rapid cuts of him looking at the monkey which leads into the vision he has of his dead wife. Yeah. The shot of him, just the biggest one, I think is him grabbing the knife.
3: I was going to say, that's the big one. Yeah. That
0: one was very jarring.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, it's debatable from that point on whether, the scene of him checking his wife to the hospital is even something that is there.
0: Yep, because it goes right from that to the bus. Yeah, with where it's it essentially looks like they're riding through clouds.
3: I think he kills his wife in that scene, and then that is just carries through to the ending. I think she's dead from that point on. Honestly,
0: yeah, you yeah you can make that read absolutely. Yeah,
3: I you know
2: it's funny. My my one I have two notes for this film. One of them is our community connection, which we'll get to in a bit. Hey, the other. <laughs> well I I can do it now, but you're gonna have to say the guy's name for me. Because I'm just going to embarrass myself. I assume
0: you used Koji Yakusho, the lead? Yep. Okay.
2: So just real quick, Koji Yakusho was in Babel, the, the Alejandro Inarritu film, who also featured Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett starred in Terrence Malik's Night of the Cups, which also featured community creator and writer Dan Harmon, huh. an actual speaking huh. role in that film. So nice. really? that's our community
0: connection. Yep. I had no idea he was in it
3: where's the community spoof of cure when
0: we do that <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah. it can be part of the movie they just announced yeah, yeah. well there's
2: the ass crack bandit episode that that's a spoof on um what's his face uh oh yep yeah, big <laughs> eric's gonna have to edit out
0: <laughs> the... edit out or extend
2: extend gone girl director Oh, dude. Fincher. Fincher. It's just Man, Fincher. of all
0: movies, not to think of
2: Fincher during. Sure, <laughs> <No, it is. laughs> I've been thinking of him all week. I just blanked on his name. Uh, it happened. You're lucky I remembered the movie title seven, the way my mind goes when we start recording it. <laughs> yeah, so you, you could relate it to the Fincher episode would be the closest thing, I guess, probably, maybe. But anyway, that's our community connection. It's hard to, to get there because, you know, obviously not a lot of people in both of these movies and the series, but uh the other note I had was I'm shocked that Eric loved a movie with this little score in it. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're such a big score guy, usually. And I, it was, I was so aware of it, the lack of music and when it shows up, how incongruous and kind of jarring it is.
1: Yeah. I'm like, yeah.
0: But I do, I I have griped a little bit and it depends on the needs of the film, obviously. But yeah, I I tend to be a big score fanatic, but I, I've mentioned a lot of movies we've covered. I think people tend in horror, particularly tend to lean too much on it. Yeah. yeah. Mm hmm. And that's one thing that's very much less is more. And boy, is this movie emblematic of that. (laughs) Yeah. Of how much, like I said, everything is predicated on sound and stillness. You know, very slight camera moves, but there's no like rapid, the, the camera never plunges forward there's no there's some handheld shots
3: but nobody's running i think there's one tracking shot i think in the whole movie maybe i saw when uh, it's going into the bathroom where the doctor's cutting off the corpse's face
0: yes that's that's the closest one again white tile everywhere every
3: other shot is those wide like almost like a stage play just these wide sets with at the middle distance with the you know the care the players the characters moving back and forth like Almost observed very clinically from afar, and that's how you get all the violence. I think it's just matter of fact, no score from the like middle to far distance. Yeah, feels like looking at an ant farm. It's all
1: very blunt.
0: Yeah, yeah. even the one gore bit, really. See, well, I guess there's two. There's the guy getting shot in the head, but the, but that sequence where there's the bit where she's peeling. Yeah, you know the the flesh back, It's just done as again just silent and just slowly peeling. You yeah, know, no yep. big like, swelling. No strength, jump
1: scares no, or anything. It's or just no, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't try to convince you to be terrified, just let you sit with it. Yeah. <laughs> See
2: This is where I would normally bring up other horror movie director just to make Eric wince. But I'm just going to give you this episode off and we're just going to let you. for our regular viewers, this is where I would make that snarky joke that I make every episode. <laughs> and I'm just not going to, we're going to let you do it yourself. I like that he made it without making it. Yeah, I like that too.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll give it a break. I would really uh, love to hear your thoughts on Occult now because... It's, score-wise, it's the polar opposite, but I think it still works. It works very, very effectively. It's terrifying. It's this grating, horrible, industrial, like, whale, but it's omnipresent. It's the whole film, basically. It just works so well. But, yeah, like it. it's the two ends of the spectrum between that and Kira. Yeah,
0: Naroy, from what I remember, was pretty similar. To that. It had, like, kind of trembling strings throughout. Oh, you mean the
3: score to the thing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's exactly that, yeah. But it's it's funny. We recently uh, another recent episode we did was "Come True," the Anthony Scott Burns movie. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Same thing at that end of the spectrum in terms of a, a persistent.
2: It's almost a drone through the entire film.
0: Yeah, it's funny though. I just I have to say, Jake, it's funny that you mentioned Babel because I assumed you were going to use Yaksho Koji. Sorry, I keep some for whatever reason. His name I often say it the Japanese way with the names reversed, so apologies if I keep switching.
2: Um, I don't even want to try and pronounce him, because I'm not good at names I haven't heard ever said out loud before, but this, <laughs> this is the first time I've heard him said, so I appreciate that.
0: He's an actor I I really, really love. If anyone has Shudder, there's actually two other movies of his you can check out that are on Shudder. One is The World of Kaneko. If anyone has Shudder, what podcast do you want? <laughs> <laughs> the World of uh, Kaneko. Yeah, I've heard of that one. Yeah. Um, world of Kaneko, yep, is on there, which is an interesting film. Uh, that's uh, Tetsuya Nakashima is the director's name. Who also did, I'm just going off memory for his name, but he also did Memories of Matsuko and did um, did a movie called uh, It Comes, which is also a horror movie that hasn't gotten an official release yet. That I also want to take a look at. But there's also a movie called The Blood of Wolves, which is on there, which is a uh, cop yakuza thriller. Mm. So neither Kaneko or or Blood of Wolves are straight horror per se, but they're on shutter, so close enough. Yeah. But it's funny because I figured Jake was going to go through him. But in my head, I was like, okay, well, he had, his one big Western role was Memoirs of a Geisha, And completely forgot until I was, I was like, holy shit, he was in Babel. And I saw that in theaters and I completely forgot he was in yeah, it. Babel was good. But yeah, he, I, I do want to mention, Bruce, real quick, is I had never really stopped and looked until I was prepping for this episode mm-hmm. about where this movie landed in his career. He had such a good '97. So the year before this was Shall We Dance? Wonderful movie. Which most folks probably know because, yeah, there's the original, but there was also, it was popular enough, uh, I guess, about a decade ago. It got a remake with Richard Gere. Yep. But the original's terrific. It's directed by Masayuki Suo, who also worked with Kyoshi Kurosawa, I believe, on a few things. Mm. But then Yakshio Koji's '97 is he does. Cure, he does Bounce Kogals, which is a Masato Harada film about, uh, if anyone's seen the Hideaki Anno movie, Love and Pop, uh, Anno being the creator of Evangelion, it's a similar premise to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, He did Lost Paradise, which is a forbidden romance movie, basically, that is based on a novel that was massive in Japan. But he also did a movie called The Eel, which is from director Shohei Imamura, who most folks will probably know from a movie Criterion release called Vengeance is Mine. Mm-hmm. but also did The Ballad of Narayama, Pigs and Battleships, Warm Water Under Red Bridge. Imama is an awesome director. I mention this because in The Eel, there's all this stuff with Koji Yaksho playing a cop who's tracking down a killer and you know things that the detective in this movie may or may not do to his wife at the end of the movie. The Eel is about a man. This is the opening scene. The Eel is about Yaksho Koji coming home, finding his wife is sleeping with another man. And then it cuts to him walking into the lobby of a police station covered in blood he says, hello, my name is so-and-so. I just killed my wife. This is the murder weapon. <laughs> and he puts it on this. Please arrest me. <laughs> wow. That was the same year as this movie. And the whole movie is based on what that guy's life after he gets out of his prison sentence. Ah. But it was funny. I was like, holy shit, cure in the eel with these very antithetical positions were, were the same year. But yeah, he had a massive 97. That's incredible. Jesus. He's also in another one of my favorite movies, which is Eureka from director Shinji Aoyama, which is another film I found on VHS at this random video store.
3: What a formative video store that was. Jeez, just hit after hit.
2: (laughs) So just to toss this out there, so I just looked up Memoirs of a Geisha and there is a connection there. Uh, Aaron Takahashi is in Memoirs of a Geisha and he's also in Community. He played the math club leader in A Fistful of Paintballs, the uh, season three paintball episode. So there you go.
1: (laughs) Two! Two
3: community connections. Awesome. Two at the start, you know, this how deep does the rabbit hole go?
2: <laughs> Depends on how far I get with the connections. I like to to make them reasonably close, but not too close. That way they drive Nick nuts.
3: <laughs> I think that Cure has maybe the scariest ending to a horror movie ever.
1: Yes. Give me goosebumps
0: it's certainly my favorite yeah it's
3: top five it's gotta be just that one you only see the knife for like two frames as she walks by someone else and i'm told that there was originally a longer ending yes there was but i've not seen it i've not seen it but i like the the restraint to have that be the ending is masterful just have that one shot of the knife like this is not over yeah (laughs) <laughs> and, like, it, it's not over, and then there's no easy explanation for why it's not over. It's like, has this become a transmissible sort of psychokinetic contagion of some sort? It, it reminded me of The Fallen a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. I can see that. That was part of the, again, part of the whole um,
1: wave of crime thrillers after Seven. I, I I have to admit, my interpretation of this movie was, was significantly more grounded, than mm-hmm. you're allowed to be. The, the thing
3: is that it can go either way, right? It's so open ended. You can,
1: yeah. Like to me, like you have this character, Mesmer, who created this method and then somehow put it on this recording where you like, if you listen to this recording, now you can do it, or maybe compelled to do it. Could go either way. Mm-hmm. But of course, my wife interpreted it as like, you know, Mesmer is actually like living on through them, even. It's like, yeah, there, there's so many different ways you can look at this, and they're all bad.
2: They're all bad.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's only
0: mostly. There's bad.
2: no way to interpret a happy ending here.
3: There's the terrifying image we see of Mesmer with no that blank, the, the empty yeah. face. Yep. That for me would you know you could read that as being like he is no one and he can transfer through anyone. He is his word, you know. Yep.
0: Yeah, and and also it can transfer through anyone, or or alternately is anyone. Yes, exactly. In, in terms of being. It's this movie. Seeing it again is actually kind of timely in a dark way. But uh, we recently, so the episode before this, we had Cynthia Palio on as our guest and had a fabulous chat about Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Nice. And Cynthia is written a ton of stuff that's rooted in crime and true crime. She has a poetry book called You Know Into the Forest and All the Way Through, which is based on a hundred different murder cases of people who were were murdered and wrote these each poem is you know based on a case. And then our current book crime scene is an epic poem about a fictional crime case, and again, it's fabulous. Anyone who hasn't picked it up, go check it out but during that conversation, one of the things we talked about was you know the 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 emotional toll of true crime and the, the oh, emotional yeah. toll of researching stuff like that and grappling with you know w- what humans are capable of yeah and i I think it is difficult to get a more horrifying core concept than One of the things this movie potentially posits, which is that everything that we deem as morality essentially is artifice. Yeah. And we are just this, you know, swirling of self-centric chaos because we do have this need to believe that, you know, people are fundamentally good. And I'm really going to try not to get political on this. But there is there is such a rising instance in a lot of cases where you see people saying where people are positing somewhat monstrous things in public and the response is, well, surely nobody would actually go through with that. And then people pursue that again, not to get into detail, but it's the concept of what people are capable of is something that I think is always timely to agree, but sadly seems somewhat more timely. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And even then it's even outside of the character of Mamiya, who's sort of, you know, the engine of all this, even Fumie, who is Takabe's wife, even her medical condition, which opens the film, is emblematic of that, That op- in that opening scene, which is so great in so many ways. But her medical condition, which basically manifests as it seems, early onset dementia. Yeah. Poss- the movie has a reference that is possibly rooted in trauma of some sort. But as heartbreaking it is, even that medical condition, being rooted in dementia and Alzheimer's, that's a this kind of the same fundamental fear is what makes you you yeah and when do you cease to be you right and as part of that fear we you know folks have of deteriorating mental conditions and that opening sequence one things i like that i didn't think about until i was re-watching it just now was looking at the surroundings in that opening scene of again we talked about the white tile earlier but that whole scene the doctor's office bright white yeah white lab coat ceramic teacup or coffee cup that's on there, and then this white ceramic-esque table, uh, which is shaped almost like half of a yin-yang. I don't I don't know the better phrasing for it. So if it's there's a better name for that shape, I apologize. Like that's just what I think of it. Yeah. <laughs> and so which that image really struck me because it, it comes to mind in the scene where Takabe sits down and confronts Mamiya in the interrogation room and all of a sudden it cuts to shot reverse shot. When Takabe sits down, half of his face is oh, right. half of Mamiya's face. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And it's the same with the reverse shot. Whoa. So that image of the table, I was like, I wonder if that was deliberately chosen as in like a, a half of a person. But even that table, again, is clean, pristine surface. And then it starts to tremble because of what's underneath it. Yeah. And in this case, it's her legs. It's her physically trembling. But it's still it's just this visual image That so perfectly encapsulates everything. You could argue you're about to watch for the next you know two hours or so.
2: Yeah, and the movie tells you her husband's going to kill her.
0: Yeah, with with the Bluebeard references. Yep. And the other element of it too, which I thought was interesting with her condition, is you guys were talking earlier about the degree to which Mamiya's approach and his tactics are, or whether or not he's cognizant of them, whether or not it's artifice. Yeah. Or whether or not it's you know actually he's kind of going in and out of being you know, and, and I would argue it's, it's absolutely intentional. It's, it's absolutely structured as part of, you know, down the road, mm. because partly is it because it mirrors fumi's condition. fumi's condition with this early onset dementia is she's not in control of being in situations right. with repetitious conversations where she is something beyond her control. Mommy it, as the counterbalance to that is similar things, but very, everything is precision Everything is articulated to get to the desired effect. And also mirrors Takabe in his interrogation techniques. So everything has a parallel somewhere.
3: Yeah, that absolutely tracks me. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, what do you think the title means?
2: I've been dwelling on that since I first watched it. Because I have an idea. The only thing I kind of keep coming down on is because the movie is so, to some degree or other, nihilistic. Yeah. It feels like the cure for society is just getting rid of it
1: yeah that's where I landed literally <laughs> yeah. cutting
0: through the veneer of society yeah
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah the x which again and again this is probably reading too much into it because there's a lot of ways you could go with the x thing but again going back to the imageries of the tile and everything is I will
2: say every time I thought of it it was x is going to give it to you but that's neither here nor there
0: <laughs> on that note <laughs> <laughs> Quick sidetrack, remind me to come back to the ending, but I want to mention something, because one of the things that was stuck in my head watching this, because I haven't seen it, but there was a Kyoshi Kurosawa film that was remade in America, and it was Pulse. Oh, yeah. It was supposed to be directed by Wes Craven. I think he worked on the screenplay, didn't direct it. I've heard it's not great. I haven't seen it, because whenever we do the original Pulse, we'll do the remake. Is Michael Keaton in it? Uh, No, that's White Noise. Yeah, White Noise. The remake Pulse is interesting i've heard it's not great <laughs> but it was stuck in my head because one of those first off on a somewhat serious note the you know the idea popped into my head about you know should they do an american remake of cure and in most cases i'm no. thoroughly against remakes and i am in this case okay. what i will say as a devil's advocate thing it Jake and I have talked before about adapting stuff and the value of coming at things from a position of passion. Yeah. And yeah, when you're invested in something and you love something, that it always comes through. And while I agree for the most part, there's a, a lot of times the way my brain works is I'm fascinated by things I'm passionate about, but also approaching something I'm not passionate about. And approaching it from an analytic perspective, okay, why am I not drawn to this thing? Can I deconstruct it?
2: Yeah, I just tried to do that in our Constantine review. How'd that go? Yeah,
0: not so great, but um, (laughs) that was a mess. (laughs) That that episode was the equivalent of the room the phonograph is in at the end of this, with a phonograph just playing on loop, Jake saying, fuck this shit, fucking awful Keanu shit, fuck. But so one thing that popped into my head was, you know, should they remake Cure? And obviously, I do not think they should, but I will admit that with this movie being predicated so much of the question of self-identity yeah, and the value of the individual versus society, I, I really got hung up on the idea of how would you translate that to America? Can you change that and reroute that concept Absolutely. In, in, in a society that's so much reversed where America's all, me first. Make mommy a shitty Carl. Yeah, but, but the other thing too was, got stuck in my head was, I really wish they had remade it. I want it in the mid 2000s, like Pulse. Give me the Platinum Dunes Cure. Oh, like, yeah. give me, I want a Lucas Black. Give me a Josh Hartnett. Fetch me one of the Wahlbergs. I want, <laughs> just put them in there. I want a super bombastic Steve Jabonski score. I want, you know, the, the super Fincher-esque silvering effect. The wife comes out at the end and says, I'm cured, which is where the title comes from now. She's yeah. cured of the thing. And then you smash the end credits. It's going to give it to you. I had the same thought, Jason. But the other thought I had about it, which is all the bits towards the back half of this film, with Takabe making his repeated trips to the family restaurant. Yeah. Which something we've talked on this pod before about. Prime opportunity for a Denny's tie-in menu.
3: <laughs> Get the
0: Mesmer Slam with all the bacon strips laid out in little X's. Oh God! <laughs> Contrast the pristine dishware of Denny's to the dingy-ass bathrooms.
2: <laughs> you know, our, our Denny's by us closed, finally. Like, it's gone, and now I it's know. a Popeye's. <laughs> and what a lateral move.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'd say it's a step up, personally. But that's just me. But the family restaurant going back to the ending thing, that's a if you want to make the more nihilistic argument for what the title cure means, that bit is a crucial one because the the first shot of the table where Takabe is sitting at the table is a, a meal that he's eaten a quarter of and the waitress comes up and says, can I take your plate? And final shot, they show very... Well, in the final sequence, they show very explicitly he's in the clean plate club. Yeah. it is. He has cleaned every dish.
3: Everything's laid out perfectly. Like, his his smokes and his lighter and his, his phone are all, like, perfect. Yep.
0: Everything inside is now outside, and that's his quote-unquote cure. Yeah. But I am fascinated by their choice to... That they went with, again, literally cure. The movie, it's, in Katakana, it's cure. So it is phonetically English for cure. I don't know what the... Japanese equivalent would be, but I am curious about their decision to go with an English mm. title specifically instead, and I wonder that what. Honestly, just thought it was catchy. I mean,
3: yeah, it works well. I don't know if I like it better than, um, God, what was the previous title you
0: said? Uh, the uh, the Evangelist uh, Dendoshi, I think. Oh, name. okay, yeah, I like here better. <laughs> it was a yeah. little catchier. And there's there's a name I couldn't quite ca- So there's there's the bit where they talk about kind of the origins of mesmerism in Japan, and they make a reference to. What it used to be called in the subtitle version I have it, it translates as soul conjuring, mm. and I it sounded like they said Reiji, but I couldn't quite make it out. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that is tied to the same the same first character from Reiki R E I K I. I wonder if the ray there is the same operative kanji because Reiki again has spiritual elements to it. I don't know. I don't know a lot about it, but I assume it does. I do. I say want you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I know you have some context for it, but. um, but I would need to know what the kanji is for exactly what they said first to do that comparison. But that's something I'm curious about. My copy
3: says Soul Conjuring as well. Okay.
0: Yeah. I'm curious if the Criterion one
3: retranslates it.
0: Yeah. Because a lot of times yeah. they'll redo the subtitle, so I'm curious to see.
3: I can't wait for that to get here so I can like check out the new transfer and the, yeah, like you said, the subtitles and whatever extras they have. Yeah, I wish they'd gotten me to do the art, though. I would have liked that. you you pitched a cover for it on twitter that looked phenomenal oh thank you so much yeah i never really expected anything but yeah i just i like doing fan art of very specific things
0: (laughs) oh it looked awesome yeah i love seeing your artwork come out as you've got the malignant print which you now you sell in your imprint shop which we will plug at the end of this but yeah when i saw that come across twitter i was like that's such a fabulous print
3: yeah, every once in a while, I'll, like, I'll see something that makes me jazzed enough to do um, fan art. I just did one for Barbarian, because that one just kicked my ass all over I, the Uh
2: I yeah. was looking f- to see if that was streaming yet last night when I was looking for something to watch. And and then I kept coming across things that almost said what it was about and had to X out of those real fast.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, try your best not to get spoiled for that one, because it's an expertly directed movie that knows exactly how to manipulate what you're expecting from it and if you go into it with zero expectations and knowledge of where it's going you'll have a you'll have an amazing time I think I love that one but Yeah god I got to I want to know his meaning in here for that specific the ethereal car ride is cuz it's been in a couple of his other movies in that exact same way and I'm like that must denote something very specific to you as a director and I want to know what it is whether it's just like putting the idea in the audience's head that it's not, you know, it's not unreliable narrator and that situation isn't that actually happening or, you know, what have you. But I really like the effect a lot.
1: I, I interpret it as him giving up. Okay, interesting. You know, I don't think he um, so much, like, like I feel he had someone else kill her. Like, oh, he used interesting. the power to get somebody else to offer in the hospital. Oh, okay. And, and I feel like that moment in the bus was his last moment of fantasy where you held on to the happy life like this this is my last final hurrah in the complete fiction that is our happy relationship jeez oh man it's a cheerful film
0: <laughs> <laughs> and nicks taking the optimistic track yeah
2: see i i read that differently like like that was when he like where he went when he was killing her
3: that's kind of what i i feel i think like, yeah. you
2: see all the deaths, you know, like they're so calm and casual, like, the, those people are, I, I want to say, disassociated, and they're all riding the bus. Yeah. And when he's riding the bus and he kills her, and the rest of the movie is, is functionally the transfer of the Mesmer gift from one to the other. Right. It's kind of how I ended up. Blaming I'd be
1: more it. willing to entertain that theory except if I hadn't that, said it. That we see him drop her off at the <laughs> hospital and her body is found at the hospital.
3: I think that the the body at the hospital is the main thing. Yeah, that they can throw the wrench in that. Like even if they didn't have that scene of her in the wheelchair I could buy it because I really feel like that
1: scene where he drops her off is very suspect. But if uh, it was mm-hmm. one or the other I could ignore it but two of them makes me feel that's reality. I agree. I agree.
3: Yeah, it's so up in the air as to the exact course of events, but uh, nothing good.
2: <laughs> no. But then you also you have that doctor who's so disconnected from her. Yep. Yeah, that he he's physically. somewhat behaving like those people. Yeah, physically and so you know,
0: far removed from her in that opening. Yeah.
2: God only knows when that scene actually takes place where she's reading Bluebeard. Yeah. You know, like I'm not sure that the chronology of this film is is exactly point A to point
3: B either. Yeah, there's the two scenes dealing with Bluebeard: the opening scene and then. Addressing it again later in the film, like right near the end, where she doesn't remember reading it at all. But yeah. who can say, honestly?
0: Yeah. And my read, basically, for the the misty element, the smoke elements, like you mentioned, the bus sequence and a lot of that stuff, mm. a lot of ways you can go with it. But for me, it was, you mentioned before how the... the those elements are so distinct in terms of these ethereal things, like Mamiya distinctly manifesting on the beach. Yes, this element of omnipresent smoke in the way it envelops the buses in a completely yeah. unnatural way, and these are visuals that have a distinctly supernatural, you know, feel to them in terms of how they're executed. Yeah, it's also for the first intrusion of score aside from the opening is that bus shot is when there's an actual bit of score there. To me, it was the movie's what it was essentially predicated to me was the supernatural in this case is natural is mm-hmm. the idea that in terms of by casting off this, you know, veneer and that he's reverting to what essentially is the core self and emptying himself an obscured way of seeing things is in fact, a clearer way of seeing things. And that's mm-hmm. why the, the smoke and mist is so omnipresent around him in the ending. It's something that you, th- you think, Oh, this is supernatural. And it's like, it's, it's, technically the inverse of that is him returning to what is man's natural state. Oh yeah. I buy that. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I get, I, I really get hung up on the visual stuff in this film, but, um, but it's so easy to do, but there's so much of it too. Like all the, you know, the light imagery, the use of fire and water, these primordial elements yeah. that are there. The, the first murder that occurs in the movie, when the murderer returns to his this primal state where he's strip nude in a fetal position tucked into a vent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And and that bit on the opening too, just in terms of kind of the fusion of different imagery, this one that struck me watching it right before we recorded, which was during that opening sequence or the opening murder sequence, the visual series of visual cues are flickering white lights in the tunnel mm-hmm. to a dim hotel room with a single shaft of light. To a red shower curtain, so red and water. To a red police light, so right. bookended by lights. But we have this color continuity that carries through. Wow! And I was just so struck by it, and it was such a precision succession of images. Yeah, that it goes through. And ah, oh, sorry, I love talking. No, it's about great. This movie so
1: much. That's <laughs> no, fantastic.
0: And also, like the, the the cage imagery too, which I don't know if that's tied in with the the tiles or not, but this idea of, of constant perpendicular. And we, cause we see all the caged animals that, you know, mommy has in his apartment, which again, reinforcing this idea that our perception of civility and society is in fact, this external thing that is imprisoning this much darker interior. And then in conjunction with that, the, the X imagery, which I thought was so funny, which is if that idea of straight perpendicular elements is true of these things that have a 90 degree intersection then the X imagery is literally that just tilted. Oh. It is something that is simply this recurring imagery, just askew. It's wow.
1: interesting that you mentioned that allegory of animals in cages to like society, because the only animal we see not in a cage is the one that's been X'd.
0: Yes. It's the one that's been freed. Yeah. And is a monkey specifically mm-hmm. in yep. the, the human line of evolution, something that is literally in the path towards a more primal state.
2: So what you're saying is we're coming out of our cages and we're doing just fine?
3: I don't think he's doing well, but <laughs> No,
2: he's
1: not doing he's... well at all. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, he's cutting his chest now. Yeah. <laughs> he cuts in an X now. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we got the opening for this. Now we got we got to get the killers to do the opening for this. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I know one of the ones for me is in terms of a, a counterpoint to a lot of this stuff, which is one of the, the other main images that stuck with me is this movie. And, and this struck me too, because we're, like I mentioned, we just did new nightmare with Cynthia Playa. And we just covered the six prior Elm street films. We've had a lot of comfy sweaters in horror movies. Yeah, into this. <laughs> but nothing compares to mommy, a sweater bar none, mommy, a sweater, the comfiest sweater in all of horror. he looks cinemas. really
1: comfy. I gotta he, say he looks cozy.
0: <laughs> he is bundled up, nice and toasty. It is the, but also and, and somewhat tied in of that it, for levity though. But it's one thing that's easy to take for granted is that this movie is also legitimately funny at points. Yeah, very funny.
2: I laughed when he fell off the roof or jumped off the roof. Yeah, <laughs> Batman
0: moment is hilarious where he falls past the cop. There's the farcical police meeting with Renosugi playing the chief police officer. Yeah, where, where to, to the point which again the kind of blurring of the lines between. Mamiya and Takabe, where's this your boss? uh That must suck. <laughs> Even the opening too with Hanauka as the civilian after he's killed his wife with the wide shot of him jumping out the window, which yeah. is horrifying, but also just the way it is framed in the sudden thing. There is a you know oh absolutely a, a, yeah. qu- such a quirky element to it, and humor does run through a lot of Kurosawa's stuff. We were talking about Sweet Home earlier. Sweet Home absolutely has a lot of goofiness to it. uh but He did a movie after Sweet Home called Door Three. Which is a particularly interesting film because that's one he didn't write. Most of his movies he writes himself. Mm-hmm. And because most of them were he did all these V uh, cinema yakuza thrillers with the lead actor Sho Akawa. We were talking a little bit about Takashi Mike earlier. If a lot of folks would know Sho Aikawa from Mike, because he was in Dead or Alive, he was in Zebra Man, he was in Gozu, he's in a lot of Mike oh, stuff. Oh,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But he
0: was playing the, these yakuza parts in the suit yourself or shoot yourself series and he told kurosawa he That's said "Look, great title yeah <laughs> our, our movies don't have any budget but if i'm in it it'll get made and they'll let you do whatever you want <laughs> and he would met that and he said i'll do whatever you want me to do and and you'll essentially have free reign which is kind of how he got to make cure was he had made enough of these movies that were v cinema ones and that were relatively successful but his producers said well he's you know, he turns in interesting stuff and he's not a headache and he doesn't complain about us giving him so little money. So here's yeah. moderately more money to make a theatrical feature.
3: Oh, something occurred to me on this rewatch. It's funny you mentioned the sweater, because I think the one moment when he mommy is not wearing a big, comfy sweater, one or two different sweaters I think he wears to the film is the final scene mm-hmm. when he's wearing the de- he's wearing the, the coat. coat. He's wearing the long detective's coat. And did they full, it looks like I can't tell for certain, but it fully looks like they switched their coats in that final scene
0: yeah I, I wanted to go back and check i didn't catch i don't know if
3: it's like literally a straight-up swap but he's definitely wearing a long coat on um, is is the end, final scene and then i almost feel like when he gets shot and it cuts back i feel like their coats are switched back again i could be completely wrong but i'd like to look into that
0: i i was curious about the same thing i started to get and i didn't we'd be going on for another hour if I had gotten another watch because because I was starting to to lean into the fashion elements of it yeah yeah now every the way my brain works every time I saw plaid I was like ah grids and you know (laughs) perpendicular shit and all that but the the other one I thought was worth calling out is the red dress and the laundromat what was up with the red dress and laundromat because it was
3: almost like a jump scare and then they don't address it again I was I don't know what the deal was it felt like a, uh, a hypnotic trigger or something.
0: It, if you use the... It could be a few things. Uh, if It looks like an X. It looks like an yep, X. Is. It yeah. looks like an X. It. If you want to use the argument that he's already killed his wife at that point. Yeah. Because it would be after... It, it could theoretically be after that. Then it's a visual reminder of that. Uh, just the, the striking rate imagery. But also, apparently, literally from an interview with Kurosawa, it's an homage to Lady of Alique, apparently. Oh, Okay. So one of the nods he put in there. Um, Interesting. Because like, it comes out and it's
3: edited like one of the the scare moments, like when he grabs the knife. It's very quick. And then I don't even think you see it again in the rest of the scene where he's ostensibly picking at the clothes. It's not there again. Nope. Yeah,
0: no. It's, it's very weird. Yeah, I, I love those two dry cleaning scenes, especially the first one of the dude just you know, muttering. Himself. Just like <laughs> rambling about...
3: How much shit he hates, and how upset he is, and then as soon as the guy comes out, he's he's all smiles. And
0: it was so
2: confusing to me at first, what was going on there? It's Like, was this just guy just mumbling?
1: Yeah.
3: Yep. But
2: yeah,
0: so emblematic of everything the movie is about, which yeah. is <laughs> everyone's just deceiving. You me. have to put the veneer back on when someone's looking.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Yep. And that's that's absolutely me. Nobody's around. I'm probably muttering. It's true.
3: <laughs> what this film posits is that we do, in fact, live in a society.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh
3: that's the grand thesis of the film yeah i love those laundromat scenes they're so off-putting especially
0: the second one oh, well trevor what I've, I've just loved talking about this movie with you this has been yeah like, no. so much fun having you back so much fun absolutely is there anything you'd like to plug
3: um you know a lot of the stuff i'm working on or, or have worked on uh is kind of under wraps at the moment okay there is a podcast coming out on the 10th that is called the Mayfair Watcher Society and it's incredible and it's a sort of a soft anthology series set in a small town and each of the episodes 30 minute episodes are based on a creature or a photo monster i've created ooh nice oh. and they're amazing they they're so good i haven't written to them any of the episodes yet i'm a creative director on the series and kind of just making sure everything feels right mm-hmm. for the um the photos and the monsters that are, are kind of serving as a jumping off point for the episodes but I will be writing some later on, and I'm, I'm doing like a little bit of a Crypt Keeper intro for some of the episodes and things. Fun things. Oh, that's oh, fabulous. Well, that's yeah,
1: awesome. yeah. That's like
3: a lot of fun. This is launching October 10th? October 10th. There's three episodes ready to go. The first one is available on October 10th, and I think that it's also launching through a service called Apollo. And if you go with Apollo, you get access to all three at once. Otherwise, I think it's like every, I believe it's once a week. The first episode is called The Woman on the Bus. The second one is called Scissors. And the third one is uh, autopsy, and they're all some of the best podcast horror fiction I- I've heard. They did an incredible job; it- it's amazing. And there's like thirty episodes are so already written, and Waiting in the Wings, it- it's going to be really, really cool. That's the most pressing, like coming up thing. And I'm doing art for a new art for each episode of the various monsters. Oh
0: wow! All win. Oh, that's fabulous. You had a- I know you had a couple other pod appearances this year too. I we yeah. were talking a little about Neroy earlier. You were in February you were on the year in film podcast yes. and talked a bit about Neroy and the descent.
3: Uh, yes. I'm, yeah, that's correct. And I just, was this is the descent. Uh, yeah. Uh, I was just on the monster crazy podcast like two yep. days ago. Episode 33. Yep. Uh, talk, just talking about monsters in general, which was super fun. And then I'm going to be on dead head space for their Halloween episode on the 12th. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, just generally talking about Halloween horror movies and novels and stuff gonna talk a little bit about the other big thing that i can sort of talk about which is i wrote a middle grade scholastic kids horror book oh that's fun that's awesome yeah yeah and uh you know that there's been all kinds of turmoil in the um publishing industry the turnaround on that has been huge i turned the manuscript in like six months ago but i'm just now getting back into edits and i'm gonna do illustrations for it and it's gonna be really cool i think it has really good bones and it's just absolutely like chock full of monsters it's got so many monsters in it
0: that's fantastic yeah yeah
3: and you know uh, there's going to be a second one of that eventually as well but those are the two huge the biggest projects i can talk about the last thing was that uh i can't divulge any information about it but um, two months of the summer that just passed were spent doing tons of monster concept work for a big feature film that's um going to be filming so eventually ostensibly there will be a movie that'll hit theaters that'll have like Eight of my monsters in, it,
1: in it, practical effects. Ah, that's uh, really great, dude. That feels amazing. Yeah,
3: so I'm really excited about that, and I want them to announce it um, so I can talk about it, and eventually, <laughs> hopefully, show up off some of the hundreds of drawings I did for it over like three months. Wow,
0: oh, that's exciting. That's really cool. I'm excited for both the film and the eventual art book. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah,
3: saying. exactly. Uh, but yeah, that's the that's the big stuff. Other than just you know trucking along and doing freelance commission work
0: that yeah, that's everything you just mentioned we'll we'll retweet it we'll circulate it and can't wait to see all of it but mainly trevor thank you so so much for coming on and chatting about this movie thank
3: you thank you for coming back yeah of course thank you for having me this was lovely love talking about it love talking about it with you guys and uh so many insights i had not i know i need to go watch it again with like the, to-
0: <laughs> the tiles yeah, in mind alone like <laughs> yep yep A new title of Tile Fanatic on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) When you see the promo art for this episode, there are indeed tiles in it.
3: The grout in between the tiles symbolizes like the sins of man. (laughs) I mean, it might. It might, actually. Wouldn't put it past him. Yeah, I I agree, actually. Yeah, thank
2: you
0: so much.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Once again, big thanks to Trevor Henderson for coming on the pod. Oh my God, that was so much fun. Thank you. Oh, I love that man. (laughs) yeah it is always an absolute delight to talk to trevor i was so so happy he was going to come back on to talk here with us ever since we did the butterfly kisses with him i said i was like when we get to cure crossing fingers that you know we'll get trevor back and he did and oh my god that conversation was so much fun it it seems redundant to say if you follow us on social media you almost certainly follow trevor and his work already but on the off chance that you don't Please check out all those pods we mentioned, especially the upcoming stuff Trevor mentioned that he's got. But if you haven't yet, uh, his website is just trevorhenderson.format.com. And when you go there, there is a link for prints. Uh, it's based out of the website print, which is i n p r n t. So no i in the print part. But just go to his website trevorhenderson.format.com. He has prints there of the the ones I have. Is I have his Neroy print. He has three for John Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy that i have and his covers for i breathe the body his skunk ape print which is for uh department of truth so please go support trevor and pick up a print because it, his work is fabulous uh the talk of the apocalypse trilogy reminds me nick do you have a john carpenter connection i don't for this one. Oh no i have failed you <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hey, look, I had two community connections, so that makes up for the lack of a John Carpenter. All right,
0: yeah, Jake doubled up, so we're good. (laughs) So You're covered, Nick. Did you have production rundown stuff? I do. Let me uh, run
1: you through it. So this is Cure from 1997, uh, written and directed by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Help me with pronunciations if I go off, Eric, please. Yep. He was also involved with Pulse, which was a hell of a ride. The Revenge, Retribution, Creepy, and Doppelganger. You left out Kandagawa
0: Pervert Wars. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. We'll mention <laughs> this real quick at the top. So it's something we touched on in the review with Trevor. I'm not going to get too far into the early stuff of Kiyoshi Kurosawa's career, mainly because I really want to do Sweet Home at some point, which we talked about with Trevor, which was not kind of his first horror film. And... I think that's a better place to do it. So when we get to Sweet Home, I'll talk more about his early days, but just to really quickly touch on, yeah, like a lot of big Japanese film directors, I think Hideo Nakata, who directed Ring, is the same. They got their start in Pink Films, which is basically softcore pornography, but it's the same principle as the V Cinema Yakuza thrillers that Kurosawa did with actor Sho Aikawa, which is, you know, not much money, but in the Sho Aikawa case, it's I'm in it, so they'll let you do what you want. For Pink Films, it was, so long as you have the requisite amount of sex in it, (laughs) the studio doesn't really care what you do. And as a result of that, Pink Films is is a complicated subgenre, let's say, but there is a lot of counterculture and, you know, particularly uh, director Koji Wakamatsu, I believe, I'm going off the top of my head, has done a lot of stuff of transgressive and very politically charged stuff in the pink film subgenre if for some reason you're curious about pink films there's a book by jasper sharp called behind the pink curtain which i think is out of print but check it out it's kind of a whole complete history of the pink film subgenre all
2: right all right i'm just going to throw this out there before we jump in there so a few years back uh there was a movie called val luton the man in the shadows that was a not a movie it was a, a documentary and Kiyoshi Kurosawa is in that. He's one of the people who talks about the influence of Val Luton. One of the special thanks for that is John Carpenter. <laughs> and it's a special thanks because John Carpenter is involved in it. In that, one of the people John Carpenter credits for a lot of his inspiration for things like the fog and Halloween is the Val Luton tradition. So they both at least stem from a similar tradition and have some similar influences, and they're both involved in that one picture. So there you go. I got your ass covered.
1: Thank you. You're welcome.
0: <laughs> you just covered his carpenter connection and you skipped mentioning the architect of a certain cinematic franchise that you normally bring up to. Man, it's both our birthdays came early. <laughs> All right, <laughs> <That's> like <by laughs> mind,
2: but. So, so here here's why. So we're recording this on the night of the Sixers' very first preseason game. I'm wearing a Tyrese Maxi jersey as we're recording this. They're back. They played the Brooklyn Nets featuring, you know, the the excommunicated son, Ben Simmons. And then they beat the shit out of him. And <laughs> Tyrese Maxey scored 20 points in something like 14 minutes. He just went supernova just right out of the gate. So, like, I'm in a great mood. Like, the last episode we recorded, I was miserable about sports. Tonight, I'm great. And, you know, everybody got a little present. So, Thank you. there you go. Thank Tyrese Thank Maxey and the Sixers.
0: Thank you. We appreciate it so much
1: edited by Khan suzuki who worked on entrails of a virgin evil dream and the
0: revenge you left out scanty panty doll pungent aroma <laughs>
1: i'm just gonna mention all the
0: porn ones you skip. <laughs> <laughs> but you got entrails of a virgin so i, 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 I did. can't i did <laughs> can we have that title again eric please scanty panty doll colon pungent aroma 1984. Entrails of a Virgin was two years later, 1986.
2: Pink films. Shannon doesn't listen to our podcast every episode, right? But he might listen to this one, and I feel like that's a problem because he's absolutely going to make us fucking watch that in January
0: when we go down to our our horror weekend again. Shannon, who has subjected us to both hentai common movies. Oh, we should get a hentai common connection for this. movie. Hentai common is badass. I'm just going to say right now. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) If you've seen the movies, you know where that particular inflection of yes! Please stop doing this to me, or I'm
2: gonna bring up the fucking director. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a good mood. Why would you try and end that?
1: Cinematography by Tokusho Kikumara, who worked on Juan, Deathwater, Crazy Lips, and One Miss Call 2. The special Makeup Effects artist, uh Yuchi Matsui, who worked on Kill Bill Volume 1, Shutter. Ichi the Killer, Audition, Spiral, Ringu 1 and 2, Pulse, The Grudge 1 and 2, and Reincarnation. I know all those. I like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Music by Gary Ashia, who worked on Juan 1 and 2, Crazy Lips, Unholy Women, and The Licorice Stranger. Good selection. Thank you. <laughs> Produced by uh, Daiyai Studios, who worked on Cheerleader Camp, Blind Beast... <laughs> All the Gameras, Tomie and Daimajin.
0: Uh, wow. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, your first one threw me. So. <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah. Daiye has done a lot, but yeah, like Nick mentioned, they did basically like every kaiju film in the sixties like all the Gameras. And uh, I think they did most, if not all of the Zadoichi films from around the same time. They did the also the new series. So around the time of Cure is when the the new Gamera trilogy came out, which is by I believe it was Shusuke Kaneto, I believe, and who's also a prominent horror director. He did one of the episodes of Masters of Horror, the Showtime show that mm-hmm. um, you know but McGarris oversaw, which John Carpenter also. There is a John Carpenter connection. <laughs> um, that Gamera trilogy is great, but yeah, around the time is this they also they did Matadayo, which is. Another Kurosawa, Akira Kurosawa, it's his last film. They did *Shall We Dance, which we talked about in the chat with Trevor. Love it. Uh, they did a lot of stuff with Takashi Miike, Dead or Alive, City of Lost Souls, Dead or Alive 2. Then there's Daiei Co. Limited, which I don't know the degree to which that is involved with them. Daiei Co. Ltd. appears to be their anime wing. Again, it's entirely possible this is a different Daie. I don't know. But it's on the same Wikipedia page, so for this, we're going to operate under the assumption that it's the same place. And if it is, in fact, connected, then dye is also responsible for, among other things, twin dolls, which we discussed <laughs> with Ben <laughs> Collins and Luke Piotrowski in our Magnetic Rose review, which famously is the hentai that is sampled in the movie Demon Lover. The French, I uh, believe the director, uh, I haven't pronounced this, so I believe it's Oliver Isayas, I believe. But again, not looking at it, just going from memory. Demon Lovers is a really good movie, but Twin Dolls. There we go. Two, <laughs> two episodes in a row. Do you want me to run down the other hentai they did? Because there's a bunch. <laughs> it's hentai and Pokemon. Oh, they also did Someday's Dreamers. Someday's Dreamers is actually a really good show. No hentai. It's a really sweet, kind of magical slice of life show. Yeah.
2: So Nick's got his John Carpenter connection. I've got my community connection. And now Eric's got to tie everything to Twin Dolls. <laughs> I've got
0: the Twin Dolls connection. Where I thought mine at?
2: was hard. Good luck. Let's <laughs> uh. say so you bridge innocence to twin dolls.
0: <laughs> Crack my knuckles.
1: And finally, we're distributed by janice Films, who distributed Scanners, House, Night of the Living Dead, King Kong, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and Stalker.
0: Yeah, Janus is uh, the distribution wing for Criterion, so yeah, all kinds of good shit.
1: Yeah, great rundown. Do you have do you have stuff for the actors too? Some, though it's not as exciting. So, The Murderer, Kunio Mamiya, is played by Masato Hagawara. He's been known for Kiyoso Tanjo, a class to remember, and Marx.
0: Yeah, class to remember is a big one. Sorry, folks listening. This is, we're doing a Japanese movie. You gotta listen to me geek just a little. But yeah, class to remember is really good. That's a Yoji Yamada movie. Yoji Yamada folks in the West would probably know for his movie Twilight Samurai, which got nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. And then he did some uh, Jadaigeki, which are period films after that. Before that, he did like all the Torosan movies. There's like 50 of them. But for Masato Hagawara, who plays Mamiya, I need to mention, though, for anyone listening who is an anime fan, because I was so excited, he is the voice of Kaiji from the show Kaiji. And if you have not seen Kaiji, it is such a great suspense gambling series, just like high stakes drama. And essentially this guy you know betting on his life basically against the yakuza he's incurred a heavy amount of debt and he's basically put in situations in which he needs to gamble to get his way out of it and if he doesn't he will get fucked up and by the end of season one he is fucked up so if you're a fan of those anime that have extended like tactics then this is actually an an interesting the, the very first game they play is they play rock paper scissor but it's with a deck of cards So some cards have rock, some have paper, some have scissor, but it's not equal numbers. So it's basically this massive group of folks on a boat. There's like 100 people all playing rock, paper, scissor, and they essentially have to card count to figure out the odds of what the other person has. And the stakes of this are basically like the top 20% of you will walk out of here with some money. The other 80% of you are going to go into a labor camp. Damn. So yeah. Anyway, Kaiji is, is a show I very much enjoy. Detective Kenichi
1: Takabi is played by Koji Akusha from 13 Assassins, Shelby Dance, Babel, Memoirs of Geisha, Pulse, and Doppelganger. Man gets around. I like his work.
0: Yeah, no, that was a good one. He's also, uh, I've mentioned before, I'm a big fan of uh, Hirokazu Koreeda. I mentioned, before, we mentioned his movie Afterlife in mm-hmm. our Benson Moorhead episode. He did a movie called The Third Murder recently. But folks who, there's another anime one. Anyone who likes the work of Mamoru Hosada, who's currently big, his movie Bell just came out, before that was Mirai and before that was Boy and the Beast. Koji Yakusho has voice roles in all of those too.
1: And Dr. Makoto Sakuma is played by Suyoshi Yojiko from Kamen Rider Ajito Project G4, Yoshitsuna, and Four Days of Snow and Blood.
0: Yep, yeah. he was also in uh, Hideo Gosha's films, uh, Oil Hell Murder Heat Wave, and he was in Konichikawa's Village of Eight Gravestones, which I remember very much enjoying.
1: And the last one I have is the wife, Fumie Takabi is played by Anna Nagagawa from Godzilla vs. King gidorah tanko and Assign Days.
0: And she was in something else I wanted to mention, which is the episode death make of Kazuo Umezu's horror theater. So if anyone doesn't recognize the name Kazuo Umezu, Kazuo Umezu is another big horror manga creator so he, he predates Junji Ito but similar vein does a lot of horror manga and has had a lot of that all adapted into live action films so at one point they did a series of six tv movies adapting different shorts of his each one was one hour it was called Kazuo Mezu's Horror Theater you can get them in America they might be out of print now but they're not that hard to find there's three dvds two installments on each of them I mentioned that because I got the first one because I forgot to mention it in our chat with Trevor, but Kiyoshi Kurosawa did the first one of these, which is called Bug House. Or I guess they translated as House of Bugs. I think it's Mushi no Ie is, is the original title. So if you're into Kazuo Mezu for whatever, and you like live action adaptations of manga, this was actually pretty fun. And there's another one in a future installment that I'd like to do. But yeah, just wanted to mention that real quick. And the only other name I'm going to mention who you didn't cover, Nick, is Ren Usugi, who plays Fujiwara. And Fujiwara is the police chief who shows up in the big police conference. He's the dude where you know, you know they, they really fuck with his head and he gets all pissed. I'm mentioning Renosugi because if you want to know what Renosugi was in, it's everything. If it was made <laughs> after 1980, <laughs> he's in it. I mean, it's Masaki Suo's. Um, he was in Abnormal Family, Shall We Dance. He was in Maburoshi, Koreata, Takashi Miike's Audition, Takashi Mike's Dead or Alive. He worked with Takeshi Kitano and Getting Any, Hanabi. Wow. He worked with Shinya Sukamoto on Nightmare Detective. He was in fucking Shin Godzilla, going back to the, talking with Ben and Luke, who were big Hideaki Anno fans. Hideaki Anno did Shin Godzilla. He was in that. And I just need to mention this real quick. How did I miss there was a Japanese remake of Orphan Black? What?
2: There was? There is
0: a Japanese remake of Orphan Black. Holy shit. It went one season, which I somehow missed completely, because Renosugi is in it. <laughs> so Wow. That's getting tracked down. Huh. I would be very curious to see how I'm very that as well. culture
1: shift occurs.
0: Yeah. I, I'm going to be tracking that down. I was curious. So, yeah. Thank you for bearing with me while I geeked out about. And that was just a taste. Sorry. i I finally get to talk about so many people I've wanted to talk about on this pod. Hey! So. Respect. But, yeah. Most importantly, this has been an awesome movie to talk about. I'm just glad you both liked it. I knew, I knew Nick liked it. But I was real curious where Jake would land on it because because you, know, you never know what my bullshit. It's but it's so nihilistic, <laughs> and look, sometimes it, I like. That. Sometimes you're on that wavelength, and sometimes you're not. I I was really- I didn't think you would hate it. I'll, I'll throw this out there, and this,
2: I don't know if this it's a cultural thing or not. I feel like in like Asian films I've seen where the concept of nihilism is strong or important are much better than ones a lot of the american movies i've seen where that try to to get at that concept i imagine the french are probably pretty good at it too but i haven't watched any of those movies because they all look like they're going to traumatize me
0: french new extremity coming up next (laughs) (laughs) please
2: no it's coming man it's coming but yeah no i i really like this movie it just it it hit me so weird the first time i watched it and then the second time i watched it it hit me even weirder but both in good ways I just had so little like I just didn't I didn't know what it was about and know anything about the movie. I knew he made Pulse, which apparently I thought was white noise and <laughs> so it was completely just out of left field for me and and what a journey. Oh hell yeah. What a journey this film was and is. And I you know I almost wanted to recommend it to my brother, but I figured it would probably be more likely he might just come across it and watch it if I never mentioned it to him. Yeah, if you mention it to him, he won't watch it. Because that's... I literally tried to bribe him last night to watch <laughs> fucking the Mortuary Collection. Really? I was talking about, it's like, I, I, you know, maybe... I've been I... trying to get him to watch that since it came out, haven't you? Like, two yes. years? It's like, yeah, maybe I'll get a Shutter subscription and see what's on there. I said, I will pay for it if you promise sometime during this month when you're watching a horror movie every night, you watch Mortuary Collection. Like, I've given up on resolution in the endless even though he'd fucking love them but he would adore mortuary Collect- it's I, it's october you got to watch mortuary collection in october it's filmed in the town where goonies was man it, it's like it's it's got his 80s and he's not gonna do it like i feel like i I'm just not gonna recommend anything to him anymore i'm going to get you to mention it to him and maybe he'll listen to you at least out of politeness cuz he certainly <laughs> doesn't give a fuck about being polite to me so yeah we'll see but this one i i think he would like so I, I am just not going to mention it to him ever. And maybe he'll come across it somehow. It might be old enough for him to be interested in watching it. So who knows? <laughs> well,
0: since you you like this. Okay, so that's that makes me happy. Because if you can't tell by you know, my, my voice being ponging up and down. And my jazz hands going constantly. I fucking love Kiyoshi Kurosawa. And yep. I would love to do more of his stuff on the pod. Now, yes. I will say. Bring it on. Cure, I think, is his high watermark but that being said and i think for most folks they would say it's one of two they would say it's cure or they would say it's pulse yep as, as long we can do more but as long as you understand what you were
2: getting yourself into if we do sweet home like just how many jokes i'm going to make about the name oh, of there's it. the movie's going to give you more so i uh, just throwing that out there that's going to be the leonard Skinnerd episode of scary stuff if we do that
0: i think the odds are that the if the next one we do whenever we get to it i mean who knows, circumstances coming up, but I think odds are it'll be one of two because there's odds that we'll end up doing Pulse because it's Pulse, it's so well-known, it comes up a lot. But I think Sweet Home would be the next one because I think Sweet Home it would be really fun to talk about. It's really funny looking at Sweet Home and seeing the elements that are consistent with his later films versus the stuff that isn't. Like I said, tonally, it's very different in a lot of ways. But also, Sweet Home is... Somewhat tied to a pretty significant horror movie franchise, an American horror movie franchise. And if we ever do that franchise, then I'm going to push to do Sweet Home first. So that's why there's a somewhat higher chance that we do Sweet Home is because if we ever do this particular movie series, I must say, can we do Sweet Home because it it, it is connected in in a way? Yep. Well, just just put it in a poll with a
2: movie I want to do.
0: And it'll, it'll win. It'll, it'll win instantly. <laughs> it'll just trounce the shit out of Michael Myers and <laughs> Every time you put Halloween in a poll, it's the end of Halloween kills. Except Michael Myers doesn't get back up. It's just the times people just whoop. The <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But yeah, for anyone listening, I would definitely say if you see Cure and you like it, check out Kurosawa's other stuff from around this period. Pulse is the next natural place to go. But he made a movie after this called Charisma, which is great. Uh, Seance which I also want to do on the pod Uh, Doppelganger came up in our conversation with Trevor there's Bright Future which isn't a horror movie I really really liked Bright Future I guess it's pretty divisive if you're into family dramas uh, Tokyo Sonata is phenomenal and then there's Loft which again I liked it a lot of people really really don't Um, but he has a very diverse series of films so I think he's an endlessly interesting filmmaker to talk about and, and much like we were just talking about Wes Craven in our conversation with New Nightmare, I think it's interesting because he, he's another filmmaker who is so sociologically conscious. I mean, to the point that his degree apparently is in sociology. So there's always interesting sociological angles to the films and also just so much precision and such meticulous effort in constructing the movie. So even when stuff doesn't land, it's still interesting to talk about.
3: Uh,
0: as evidenced by me gushing, and look, I touched on like, half the stuff i've got for this film i have a like a whole runner on pipes and tunnels and you know pipes as transitional devices and the carry water this primordial element and tie it back to the toilets and the sinks which tie into the porcelain and it's we'll have a bonus episode where i ran about tunnels and pipes for 30 minutes but what i will say is if you haven't checked the film out go see it obviously but if you haven't if, just go watch it again following this discussion not necessarily to dwell on any of the specific things we mentioned, but it is a very rewarding film to go back and just pay attention in general to to the editing. Trevor mentioned the sound very particularly the, the sound design of this film. It jumps
2: out, man. You notice, yeah, like, how good it is.
0: Kurosawa mentions in an interview that with his, his approach to sound, basically, is in terms of said, from a visual perspective, you know, when you're looking at a film, you're looking at a very limited space. And clearly, there is a there is a frame. And you can only fit so much stuff in that frame. But sound is something that can transcend that. And so he tries to do that a lot with sound is have something that goes beyond you know, the literal borders of the frame that you're looking at and something that unconsciously gives you an idea that the space is bigger than what you're looking at, which applies to this film with this omnipresent droning, which, among other things, gives this I think the droning is tied in with a lot of things. A when we first see oh I'm not gonna get rolling too far, I promise. when we first see Mamia, he's on the beach and he just apparates and the sound of the seashore, the surf, kind of has that omnipresent hum to it that this droning does. So it's obviously it contributes to an ever-present sense of tension, but it it just appeals to this sense of cavernous space. Like a lot of the buildings in this we talked about how the buildings are run down, but they're they're big, like derelict. Wide spaces and you get the the building at the end, which is this you know enormous ramshackle barn like place. So the, the droning contributes to that sense. So just just a lot of uh, different things. So re- really, just go through and look at all the different elements of it. You know the shot construction, the pacing. This for me, like I I think this is about like I said, is close for me about as close to a perfect movie as it gets. And I was pretty close to that on The innocence as well, where it's just everything feels. Right. Everything feels so precise. The performances are so great. Thank God, Kyoshi Kurosawa started working with Koji Yakshō as part of this. And like I mentioned, Koji Yakshō coming off such a big movie because Shall We Dance was massive. And so he was a hot commodity. And they've continued working together ever since. They've worked together in seance, charisma, retribution. But yeah, I think this is an endless rewarding film. And yeah. I I just hope folks enjoy it and hope folks have listened enjoyed listening to us talk about it.
2: I've only watched it the twice and I already I'm looking forward to watching it two more times. I mean it's yeah.
1: Absolutely. It is a wonderful film. I love the look and feel, I love the people involved, and I love the multifaceted ways you can interpret it. It's like a
2: Rubik's Cube, man. Yep. You can put it together and then you twist it a little bit and it's all of a sudden all jumbled apart and you gotta rebuild it in a different way and yeah.
0: And also a film like that if you wanted to, like I said, I think a lot of folks would, if you're into slow burn, then just the way it's constructed, even if you don't want to get into the the deeper thematic elements of it, just the slow burn of all of it is, is so particular. Again, if you really want to perceive it as a super, as a super, super natural film uh, and really lean into that, which I wouldn't so much, but I mean, stuff like, I mean, God, the, the shot in the cell when Tagabe lights the, cigarette lighter the zippo lighter and there's the under shot of the water starting to seep through the ceiling yes is literally one of my favorite shots of anything ever and there's a lot of shots that applies the ending of this movie in the restaurant is one of my favorite shots in anything ever so yeah i think this is an endlessly rewarding film and i i just hope folks have enjoyed listening to us talk about it because yep, i had fun i hope you guys did too sorry absolutely for, sorry for ranting but
1: no, hey, look, welcome it.
2: We all we all get our our silver hammers, man. You gotta you gotta <laughs> you gotta run with it when it shows
1: up. This
0: is the last of my three, so after th- I guess next up would be whatever my number four movie is if we ever get. We'll to We'll do it. Halloween Kills soon. <laughs> it's funny because what my number four would be is is one you guys haven't seen, so that will make for an interesting one if when we get to it.
2: I'm excited. Our, our next big chance to disappoint Eric, Nick.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That, yeah, that one's going to provoke some interesting reactions. So. It's not a French New Extremity film, Jacob. I promise you that. Oh. Although I do like, I like Inside. And Okay, we're not going to get into that. Oh my god, Inside. Not the merits of Inside are martyred? Oh,
2: no, I liked Inside! Look, I, I liked Kill List, I'm not completely... Oh yeah, you watched Ben we- alright, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've seen almost all of his movies. I'm, I'm you know, somewhat with it. I'm hip, I can be cool. <laughs> I know what the kids like.
0: We're going to get Jake into goop before this podcast is all said and done. Good luck. But yeah, in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. This has been a blast. So our episode before this, if all goes as planned is our new nightmare conversation with Cynthia Palaya, which was fabulous. Go listen to that. After this, if all goes as planned will be our Halloween episode. Woo. I can't wait. Can't wait. Yeah. So please keep an eye out for that one. If you like this episode, then by all means if you want to leave us a review on whatever your preferred pod platform is that'd be great we're at scary stuff pod on twitter and letterboxd we're at scary stuff podcast on instagram we have a website scary stuff podcast.com so you can go there and find a link to all our stuff we've got a merch page where you can go to all the books that jake and nick have worked on we've got a link to our t public page we got a lot of stuff so by all means check it out
2: and again hey, yeah it's october go buy scary stuff yeah we're
0: as on-brand as you get for this particular month.
2: So. <laughs> really good stories in there. It's available wherever you get books, including on Amazon.
0: Yeah, go check it out. But again, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon with a Halloween episode to close out Scary Season. But in the meantime, this is Eric saying thank you so much. Signing off.
1: This is Nick saying, All the things that used to be inside of me, now they're all outside.
2: Uh, this is Jake saying, I'm never going to hear Trapper Shop's All My Nines Were X's Ever Again the Same Way.
0: i thought you were gonna go with the x gonna give it to you reference but no another musical reference i just shout out my boy shout out trapper show thanks so much everybody good night good night